I don't know how many times I've stood before you, but every time I stand before you, I still kind of get nervous. You know, I kind of wonder, is my lesson worthwhile or not? Am I going to say the right things or error? So I'll do my best. In this political season, and really throughout the year, someone is always lifting high or crying aloud the causes or the plight of the poor, the everyday working person, blacks, Latinos, the disabled, and the rights of women, the equal pay in regards to that, the right to control their own bodies, is always brought up. You notice that when we have these people that have all these uh, going for the people, that they never mention white males, that's because we're always the problem. They then address the unfairness of those who are rich and demand that they pay their fair share of taxes and share with the poor. However, if it's in the political arena, they never really ask this of those that are their supporters, nor are they themselves really willing to put all this money. They want it out of someone else. There was an incident several years ago uh, in which a, uh, the filmmaker Michael Moore was a speaker at a, at a rally. And it was a group of movement that don't, I can't remember what it was. I think it was called Occupy Wall Street. Uh, I may be wrong. Somebody correct me afterwards. It was a group that demanded that those that had more give it to those that didn't have it. If you had two computers, give one computer to somebody. If you had three cars, give a car to somebody. It was that group. And Michael Morris was a keynote speaker at this particular rally. And when he came off the podium, this reporter went up to him and says, how much money of your $50 million, which is what he's worth, are you going to give to the people in the, in the audience? Didn't say anything. He says, how much of that $50 million that you're worth are you going to give me? Michael Moore just kind of walked his way and just said nothing, and all those that organized shooed the reporter away. Basically, you know, you give your money, but I keep mine. But I'm really digressing here. Finally, it's not unusual to hear someone state that one of the enemies of freedom uh, and of choice is Christianity and that the Bible is considered a book or a manual of hate, intolerance, and an advocate in enslavement, especially towards women. My lesson is about women and some of the things that the Bible really says about women. We're familiar with the story of Genesis and Genesis chapter 3. It does say something negative about women, actually one woman. In Genesis 3, Eve was tempted by Satan and ate of the fruit that she had been told, she and Adam had been told by God not to eat. And she then in turn uh, tempted Adam who, who disobeyed God. And because of their action, sin came into the world. That's something negative, but it's the truth. But the Bible also has a lot to say about the women that is good or good towards women. We know in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, there's an account that says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and that they married them. There's been an argument uh, and discussion that the sons of God were angels. 
and the daughters of men were men. Others are saying that the sons of God are simply those who were faithful to God versus those who were more worldly. Whichever way you believe is is okay. Um, Things got really, really bad. And God decided to destroy the world. But he spared Noah and his three sons and four wives. Now, if women were really the problem, wouldn't it have been logical for God to have said to Noah, you and your three sons go into the ark and leave the women behind, and we'll do like we did with Eve. We'll just kind of take a woman from each one of your one of you and start afresh. He didn't. God didn't spare just man. He spared four men and four women. The Bible also gives us the account of the first feminist, the first person to advocate for women's right, Queen Vashni, whose story is recorded in the first part of Esther, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 22. In the book of Esther, it begins off with the Persian king throwing a big party for his people and his princes. Um, there's some speculation that this is just right after a time that he's just suffered a really major defeat, I think, at the hands of the Greeks. So he's diverting people's attention with this great party. And everybody's been drinking and, and eating and uh, for quite a while. And so he, excuse me, he orders his queen and wife, Vashni, to come display her beauty to the princes and the people. Basically, I think the way the text is, he's expecting her to come out naked in front of everybody and parade herself around, much like you would see somebody in Playboy and some of these other pornographic uh, magazines. This is for them to you know, look and have their fantasies, but not to touch. She refuses to do this. She would not submit to such treatment. She loses her royal position, but she keeps her integrity. Another woman in the Bible, one of the most beautiful stories of love and self-dedication or dedication is the book of Ruth. One cannot read that book from beginning to end and not see in it this wonderful account of a foreigner who declined the opportunity to return to her own people when her husband died. Instead, she followed her mother-in-law back to a foreign land and completely completely gave up her own life to take care of her mother-in-law and to honor the traditions of the children of Israel. This lady gave up everything because of her great love for her mother-in-law. Again, a positive image of a poor woman in the Bible. You could really go on and on and on and on about examples of women in the Bible and positive examples. But I wanted to look at two issues that really plague us today in regards to what the Bible says about women. One of the reasons that the Bible is often maligned is that it holds views, God's views, and let's be real clear, God's views, on subjects that are contrary to what the world or persons believe or want to believe or want to follow now. And so those who can't get their way by justifying it in the Bible, 
didn't rely on God's word. Have you ever heard the phrase from someone, especially those who advocate uh, women's right or feminist, that the Bible says that women should be barefoot and pregnant? I've encountered that with people who have said the Bible wants the women to be barefoot and pregnant. King James Version is often the version that's used for translation or as the most accurate, it seems. There's the word barefoot is only used two times in the entire Bible. Both of them are in the Old Testament. The first time it's found is in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. And it's in reference to David, King David, and his people. They're leaving Jerusalem because this is the time when Absalom is rebelling against him, and they're going up the Mount of Olives where they go up to worship God. And this is what they did before they built the temple. After the temple was built, they went to the temple. The second time that the word barefoot is used in the Bible is in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 2, when God told the prophet Isaiah to loose his sackcloth and to go barefoot, prophesying, prophesying against Egypt and Ethiopia. There is no word in the King James uh, uh, Version for pregnant, but many words are carried that carry the same idea. None of the passages that I found so far in the Bible carry the idea that a woman must be pregnant, uh, but rather state that the, the condition is, is that is which the condition that person is in. Nowhere in Scripture is there found, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, that the woman must be barefoot and pregnant. It isn't there. More than likely what they're dealing with is a passage that Kyle uh, addressed several weeks ago in one of his lessons, and that's dealing with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20 through, through 6 and 9, and I'm going to read those for us. Ephesians, if you'd like to read along, Ephesians chapter 25, verse 22 through 6 9. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but, to the, but she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, 
so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. For really good comparison reading, and Jim has a uh, parallel Bible, and I have a parallel Bible, the living, uh, well, I forgot what the, the translation is, the living Bible, I forget what it is, Jim, you would know, has a really, really, really good translation of these verses that really makes this whole passage clear. The word subject, as Kyle mentioned several weeks ago, comes from the Greek word hupotasso. Hupotasso is a mili- Greek military term, and it means ranking, such as the sergeant or the master sergeant is under the lieutenant, the lieutenant is under the captain, the captain is the colonel, and so forth. It doesn't mean that the person that's under the individual is any less knowledgeable or important. It's just simply a ranking. Those of us who were in the military a long time ago, probably up to the early 70s, know very well that the sergeants, the master sergeants, tech sergeants, whatever the equivalent is in the Navy, were a whole lot smarter than the lieutenants or the captains. I knew what was going on, and really, you wanted to trust them. You didn't really want to listen to an officer. They didn't know what was going on. These people did. So the word does not imply that that individual is less of a person. The idea of this passage is dealing with Christ and the church, and you and I. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, we must submit to his will. So too the wife must submit to her husband, who must love her as himself. If you really think about this passage and listen to what it's saying. And I didn't really realize until I was looking at it yesterday. You really see this idea of one submitting to another and the one to whom one submits treats that party with love and respect. The examples that are given to us is Christ and the church, the husband and the wife, the children and the father or parent, the slave and the master or employee and employee. When you think about it, What Christianity did, Christianity freed people. Women were treated better, and slavery eventually ended, the slavery that they had then, because Christianity elevated everyone to equal status. Another passage that sometimes is difficult is found in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 7. First uh, Peter again, chapter three, verse one through seven. Um, and I'm not going to read this, but this has to deal with the passage again of 
wives submitting to their husband. In verse seven, or verse one, excuse me, it says that so even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Really, this whole passage, and it starts in chapter two, deals with the same idea of authority: be subject to authorities, whether kings or governors, masters, whether the masters are good or bad, wives to the husband. And this is talking in this particular passage about wives being submissive to their husbands, whether their husband is a faithful Christian or not. And maybe not with the way they dress and the way they act, but the way they act, they're submissive, may win that person back to Christ. It doesn't condone that the husband beat the wife or commit domestic violence is what we call it today. Uh, it, and like the passage in Ephesians, it does not end with the wife's submissiveness. If you look over in verse 7, it, it then addresses, Peter addresses like Paul does, what husbands are due to the wives. It says you are to, to live with your wife in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Now, King James actually says, with a weaker vessel. And some people are really upset about that and say, they're saying weak, women are weaker, uh, and that's not really fair. Well, those of us who have been out in the world know there are some women we would not want to meet in an alley, dark alley alone. And I can guarantee you I would last about one millisecond against Ronda Rousey or, or Holly Holmes, who are ultimate fighter, uh, cage fighters. Um, that's not what this is dealing with. What this passage is really dealing with in the way that you treat them. And the best way to, to explain that or to give an example is you have a set of dishes at home. You have your everyday dishes that you get out and you drink coffee out of or juice or milk or tea, and you have your place that you eat off, and you have your silverware, and you just go on whatever with it. And you probably could bang them a little bit, and that's fine. But you also have in your cabinet fine china, crystal glass, things that you don't do it the same way. You know, if you go like to with the crystal, it's all over the place. It's done. So you treat it a little bit differently. I love blue willow. We have a set of blue willow. And I'm just like, I don't want to crack this thing. I don't want to mess it up. But my corralware, hey, I treat it a different way. This is what Peter is talking about. You don't treat a woman like you would your best buddy. You don't treat her with disrespect. You, you treat her as someone special. She's not less than you, but you treat her with someone special. Another passage or phrase that is found in the Bible that is somewhat difficult in dealing with the idea of women is that women are not to exercise authority over men. And this is a passage found in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Verse 12, it says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
This is a most difficult passage, and one that is thrown in our faces as proof that God is a sexist and only wants women in the home. It is also used by brethren to say that women can or should not be in positions that would put them in authority over men. I agree with both positions. While it continues the idea of a modest apparel and quiet behavior, and it, you know, dealing with the home, I think that this passage more specifically is dealing with the setting within the local church. Um, the references are both back to 1 Corinthians, which state that the woman cannot uh, speak in the assembly. And we've discussed and studied that here, where in this assembly, we are in assembly now, a woman is not to speak. In a Bible study where there is a group of people but not the entire assembly, we do have speaking. I think that this passage that what we're seeing in Timothy deals more with the idea of what's going on, the authority within the church, because this passage is then followed about uh, Paul addressing the issue of the qualifications for elders and deacons. So I think what this is is dealing with um, the idea of not exercising authority in the worship service. Some brethren apply this passage to the world and would not vote for a woman or submit to a woman in authority. We know that Romans 13, as well as uh, what we found in uh, 1 Peter, directs us to submit to the government and that we must do so, whether that leader is male or female, straight or gay. If we say we would not allow a woman to be in authority over us, then none of us would ever work at me for McDonald's, for the government, for any social service agencies. And I've worked in the same job since 1977. I've had one male boss. He was a former priest in my high school. All the rest of them have been women. None of us would ever work, uh, would work in the schools or hosts of other places. And we would have to form our own business which then would be sued by the government and the ACLU and the Human Rights Commission because we won't allow a woman of, 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 to advance to a vision of authority over us. I think in doing so, what we're doing is ignoring the scriptures who give us women and authority over men in certain settings. How quickly do we forget Deborah? Deborah was a judge. God people rebelled against him. And this is before they had kings. And they would go and, and follow some false gods, and then they would get conquered. And they'd cry to God, and he'd raise a judge. God raised a woman to judge over her people. He raised Deborah. We think, the world thinks sometimes, and we think that a woman should not work outside the home. But in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 and following, we have the account of the good wife. She did work in her home, but she worked outside of her home. She had a business, but she did not neglect her home. If we think that a woman should not work at all but to be in a house, we forget about Dorcas or Lydia, who are also recorded in the New Testament. The Bible's view on women is open for all to see. God's word does not paint a negative or degrading view uh, nor promote a disrespectful attitude and treatment 
of not only women, but of all people. This is not what God expects of his followers. God indeed is equal in the way he looks at all people. Within the page of scriptures, in Romans 3.23, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He didn't say white men, black men. He says all. That includes women. That includes men. That includes straight people and gay people. And he says the wages of that sin is death. So too, within the same pages, he says the free gift of God is uh, all humanity, male and female, is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Heaven and hell will not discriminate based on gender. It will be filled with people who either have obeyed or not obeyed God. It's very good for us to study God's word and to look what it really says on various subjects. The Bible is much maligned on what it says. The world wants to take everything and define it into what they want, whether it be dress or attitudes, the marriage. But God's word is unchanging. It hasn't changed from the time it was brought to us. It hasn't changed now, and it never will change. It's there, and it's there for us to follow. If you are subject to the gospel invitation, We encourage you to come forward as we now sing the song of invitation.